Well, I've got a simple question for you. I was feeling like this as I was preparing for the message all throughout this week. Have you ever caught a movie or maybe a joke that was already partway through? You kind of come in midstream. Most of us have been in a situation like that before. And and no matter how good the storyline is or the punchline is, you just don't get the full effect unless you had heard the whole context, the, the, the whole story. And I actually had a, an experience like that not too long ago when I plopped myself down on the couch next to my 12-year-old son, who for the record knows way more about Star Wars than I do. And he was about halfway through some sort of an intergalactic battle of some sort. My head was spinning, and so naturally I had to keep on interrupting him throughout the episode, asking questions like, what's the... What's that weird-looking space thingy doing? And, and is that guy a good guy or a bad guy? Does he fight for the Republican? Can we trust that guy or not? Finally, in exasperation, my 12-year-old said, Come on, Dad. Some of you have been there. What's the point? The point is, it's helpful to know the full story, not just to come in mid-stride. And we've been tracking, as a church, through Luke's gospel together. If you haven't already, I invite you to turn to the very end of Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at the text that Bill, one of our elders here at FCC, just, just read to us. And it's necessary, as we begin our time in the text this morning, to start with a brief review of the passage for all of the reasons we've been talking about. This passage, the birth of John the Baptist, is inseparably linked with some pretty remarkable events which have transpired nine months before where we're reading. So if we're going to get the full weight of what's happening in today's text, we've got to make sure that we're not just picking up halfway through. So here is a simple, high-level recap of where we've been so perhaps we can appreciate more fully or in a more fresh way uh, what's happening here. First off, the, the angel Gabriel... The Gabriel, seated, uh, standing in the very presence of God, comes from the throne room of God to deliver a very important message to Zechariah, a priest. And Zechariah and his wife, we need to know, have been barren. They're advanced in years, way past the childbearing window. And yet Gabriel, the angel, gives the message to to Zechariah that not only in his old age will he, really his wife, Elizabeth, conceive and bear a son... The news is much better than that. This son, Gabriel continues, is going to be a uniquely special baby boy. He's going to be the promised forerunner of the Messiah, the one the Old Testament prophets have been pointing to, who will come to prepare the way before Messiah comes, to make straight his paths so that God's people are, are well prepared when, uh, when the Messiah gets here. This, this news, as you can imagine, is so mind-bogglingly, category-breakingly good that even righteous Zechariah, and, and Scripture tells us he was a righteous man, he was a faithful man, he had trouble believing such high and holy news, such amazingly good news. And, and because of his unbelief, Gabriel pronounces a consequence on Zechariah. He is unable to speak until these things come to pass. And just as God pronounced 
we see the fulfillment nine months later in our text today. And, it, and so if you want to go down and uh, drill down deeper, rather, on this beginning part of the passage, you can just flip a page or two or look back some verses or two, uh, beginning in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1 to verse 25. But today, we pick our story back up in verse 57 just as Elizabeth is coming to the end of her pregnancy. Let's look again at Luke chapter 1, verse 57, and we'll work our way through the passage. Now, the time came, Luke 1, 57, the time came for Elizabeth, that's Zechariah's wife, to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced. That's a fulfillment of the prophecy of uh, of Gabriel the angel. Look back in verse 14 if you're interested. They rejoiced with her. Verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no. That's a no-go. He shall be called John. Notice, again, the great joy of this baby's coming is nothing short of a miracle. For all the reasons we've discussed already, they, they, they were past childbearing years. And, and, and when little baby John shows up on the scene, not only is there joy, but there's a bit of a problem that begins to brew there's pressure, pressure from relatives, go figure, when a baby comes, some pressure from relatives and neighbors to name him what? Junior, right? And name him after his father. That was customary in that time to be named after a close relative, your father or your grandfather. But Elizabeth, in obedience to the angel's pronunciation to her husband, says, no, no. His name is going to be John. Now, all this is happening on the eighth day after John, baby John, has been born. You can look back in verse 59, which is exactly what God had commanded years ago, generations ago, centuries ago, to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, that every male in the Jewish line should be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. If you want to look that up more fully for context, you can go to Genesis 17. We, don't, we won't take time for that this morning. Uh, but at this time, when the baby would be circumcised, it was also customary back then to provide the name of the child at that circumcision event. And these friends, these relatives, although brimming over with joy for Zechariah and Elizabeth, have become a bit put out upon hearing from Elizabeth, the name of this child. So they appeal to the father. Perhaps they think Zechariah may be more reasonable than his wife. Let's look again at verse 61 to verse 64. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. Remember, he's, he's uh, mute. He can't talk. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, immediately, note that word, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. So, Zechariah doubles down his name is John. 
This is not up for discussion. It's final. No more questions asked. And then right before their very eyes, something marvelous happens, something completely unexplainable. Immediately, a miracle. Zechariah's mouth is open. His tongue is loosed. And, and what he says next is not just significant, it's divine. We read here in the text that he's inspired, he's filled with the Holy Spirit to say what he says next, actually to sing what he pronounces next. This is a, a hymn that we encounter uh, from Zechariah, born by the Holy Spirit to us. But before we get into the meat of that hymn, Zechariah's hymn, I don't want us to rush by what I think is an important application for us today in 2022. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth chose to obey God even though their obedience was contrary to the expectations of their family and friends. It was contrary to the socially acceptable traditions of their day. Listen, we understand this. People expect things of you, don't they? Everybody in relationship builds expectations for one another. Family in particular expects things. Sometimes those expectations are very good, but they're expectations nonetheless. The world around us has a way of doing things. And it can be downright category breaking when we choose to step outside these socially acceptable norms especially to follow God when he calls us quite uncomfortably so at times. Please hear me, Friendship Community Church. Our commitment to Christ must transcend our commitment to any other human association or societal norm. If you're taking notes, I think we've got this one up on the screen for you. Both our family and friends... And our traditions must, they must, take a back seat to God's word in Christ, folks. We're not looking for reasons just to be rebels without a cause. But sometimes, as he has a way of doing, when God calls us to walk in a way that's set apart, that's, that's different, that he calls us in a direction uh, that makes us stand out, uncomfortably so. We've got to follow God, not to default to the pressure around us from family, from friends, from traditions that society may press upon us. And I want to be gentle here, I do. So I'll say this with as much humility and love as I can muster, but, but we, we need to speak truly here. It is entirely possible, FCC, that some of us, even in this room, may be siding with family or friends against God in certain matters. Perhaps we could be prioritizing associations or relationships or values that our world or that our family has affirmed, and God does not. His relationship with his people must come first. And Jesus, the Savior, says as much. Let me remind you of Luke 14, verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, which I hope is you, 
I hope you've come to Jesus or, or you're here because you desire to lean into Jesus. Jesus says, Jesus says, if you're going to do that, if you come to me and you don't hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Merry Christmas. What's Jesus calling us to just, just universal hatred? Is that the takeaway of today's passage? You hate your family? No. Jesus is making a point here. There are plenty of other references throughout Scripture by Jesus Himself indicating the primacy of of respecting our family, our parents, and and showing love to those around us. So what's Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is making a point of scale. He's saying that our highest allegiance should be to Him, more so than even the closest friendships or relationships that we have with anybody around us. So much so that our love for Christ unquestionably higher than any other relationship or attachment to us should almost render these other affections to be hatred. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He must be first. Think about, friends, how God's Word calls us to live. Don't go looking for fights. Christmas is coming. This is not the time for you to be a colossal jerk around the family table. And sometimes when the expectations of those you love and the clear word or ways of the Lord collide, the people of God choose their maker. They choose their Savior. There's another way that this can play out, and I think it, we could safely say it plays out in the text. Some of us can also not just be cho- uh, tempted to choose people over God that we're close to. We could be tempted to default to tradition, to the ways in which things have been working in the past. There's this telltale phrase, most of you have heard it before, but we've always done it this way, right? We've got a tradition. Nothing wrong with tradition. And this tradition has served us well. This is just the way we do things around here. Isn't that what the family members were saying? In a sense, to Elizabeth, what are you doing? This isn't how you name kids in Jewish culture. Follow the rules. These traditions have served us well. They're in place for a reason. We respect those who have gone before us. We've always done it this way. Zechariah and Elizabeth don't let even tradition get in the way of what God is calling them to do. And friends, neither should we. One more point of application as we're, uh, as we're moving on. I want us to look here at the timing of Zechariah's restored speech. I think the timing of Zechariah's loosed tongue is significant. Uh, back in verse 20 of chapter 1, we covered this a few weeks back, Gabriel had said, pronouncing this, uh, this judgment, this consequence upon Zechariah's unbelief, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you've not believed my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You'll be silent how long? Until these things take place. So, how old is baby John? Eight days old. Can Zechariah talk yet? 
I bet he's beginning to grow nervous, right? No change for Zechariah. The baby's come. Zechariah is filling over, brimming over with joy, and yet he can't share that joy vocally, verbally at least, with anyone. And yet notice the timing that his speech is restored. The moment he writes on that tablet, still no speech, his name is John. What a declaration of faith. You see, Zechariah had blown it nine months prior. And yet here, God is graciously restoring him. Do you see this? In his written declaration, his name is John. We see from Zechariah a demonstration, an act of faith. It reminds me, later in the New Testament, how when Peter had denied Jesus three times, this is at the very end of the Gospel of John, Jesus comes to him again, a broken Peter, a disobedient Peter, a deflated Peter, and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Restoring him, giving him the opportunity to step back into God's call upon his life. And so now Zechariah writes what he cannot speak, and as he obeys, as he demonstrates faith, Power from on high loosens that tongue and he lets forth in a hymn of praise. What a beautiful, what a beautiful story. You see, Zechariah had been disciplined by the Lord. And friends, here's the good news. He learned from his discipline. Think that has anything to say to us? I'm sure it does. Perhaps this morning, if you are sitting under God's discipline, or, or perhaps maybe just a protracted season of hardship in your life, we can learn from Zechariah. And one thing we ought to learn is that we should resist the impulse to grow bitter. Instead, we ought to, as the people of God, resolve to see God's sovereign hand, even His kindness, through the hardships that we experience. Ask yourself this question. Do I see the Lord's discipline in my life or in general as His kindness? Is His, is his consequence, is His discipline kindness to me? Or is it just all raw badness leading me to bitterness? Is this thing, this trial... Perhaps this discipline, something that God is using to shape me, to mold me, to sanctify me into Christ-likeness, greater Christ-likeness, or not. Now, I, just a disclaimer, I'm not presuming to say that your pain is always attached to something you're being disciplined for. Zachariah and Elizabeth, same story, we learned we're righteous before God and barren. It was a cross so to speak, they had to bear all their days a disappointment. That was not a reproach from God. That was for God's glory. Not every disappointment, not every pain point in our lives is God's discipline, although the author of Hebrews reminds us in the New Testament that we ought to regard and endure hardship as discipline. The Lord is shaping us, molding us. Friends, it's God's kindness 
that is the impulse for his discipline to his children. Just like mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather, some great-grandmothers and grandfathers in here. It's his kindness that leads us to draw boundaries and extend consequences to the children that we love. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 119, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Now, what would possess a man to say that? Well, the, the Holy Spirit would possess the psalmist to say that, but it was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? He continues, that I would learn your ways, that I would grow humbly into who's, who God has made me to be. Welcome to the Christian life, friends. Disappointments come for us like everybody else. Scripture says God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. You don't get a free pass because you're following Jesus from pain. But as we navigate through seasons of hardship, perhaps even seasons of discipline, the question is, do we see those hard moments as God's kindness and look for opportunities like Zachariah did to learn and lean into the Lord, lean into obedience? Or do we grow bitter because of our pain? Let's, let's keep working through the text here. Put your finger, if you would, with me on, on verse 64. I want you to see something very significant happening as we continue our way through the text. What is, question, what is, verse 64, the first thing that Zechariah does with his tongue immediately, which has been immediately and miraculously loosened, what's he do? He, verse 64, blessed God. Just a moment, we're going to see what he says in, in this beautiful and melodious blessing. But first, before we get there, Dr. Luke, our author, tells us something of the impact of this miracle. Look at verses 65 and 66. We'll, we'll read it again here just so we, uh, we're, we're tracking through the pack, uh, passage. Verse 65, and fear, what was the response of this miracle? Fear came on all the neighbors, and, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, that's the greater region, and all who heard of them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So the collective response of everyone witnessing, hearing about regionally that the word stretched to from this miracle was twofold. First response, fear. Second response, I don't know, call it chatter. This news spread like wildfire. I mean, come on. That's, that's multiple miracles back to back. Zechariah had gone to the temple nine months prior Speaking, normal guy, walks out, unable to speak. We think he was probably not just mute, but also deaf. Every time they're communicating him, with him, they have to make signs so that he can understand what they're trying to say. And then a miracle baby, and then... They watch as he affirms his faith. His name is John, just like the angel told me. And now he can speak again. I mean, this compounded miracles. 
No wonder people are talking. And this is no small deal. I want you to see three times in these verses, 65 and 66, we can see how sweeping, how universal this news is spreading. This is a very big deal in Judea. Uh, I, I think we've got this slide to put up. All their neighbors, all the hill country, all those who heard him in verse 65 and 66. There we go. What are we trying to highlight here? This is universal. This baby John is a very big deal. All who hear these things, the text tells us, start to ask, what's going to happen through this little kid? God is clearly up to something here. It's undeniable. So, Zechariah has been silent. He's been unable to speak for nine months. What's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Well, it's blessing, we see. It's an explosion of praise. And more than that, more than just praise, it's prophetic praise. It's prophecy boiling over in song to Yahweh. And, and now Zechariah gives us a Holy Spirit-inspired hymn of praise. Historically, if, you, if you're familiar with this passage at Christmas time, Zechariah's prophecy, you may know that it's called the Benedictus. Benedictus. It's just a Latin word meaning blessing. That's the first word of the song. He finally opens his mouth, and what's he say? Look at the first word of verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That's Latin for benedictus. He's giving, giving a blessing statement, a benedictus. Now, in the song that we're about to work our way through, there are many similarities to the song we saw last week as Benjamin faithfully took us through Mary's song, her Magnificat. And this song, Zechariah's hymn of praise and Mary's hymn of praise, share many similarities. One of the things that we see in both these songs is that they're anchored deeply. And are they tethered to the words of the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets? So, it's, it's not Zechariah making up a spontaneous song on the spot. This is the Holy Spirit who has filled him. What's the Holy Spirit inspire Zechariah to sing? Well, he inspires him to sing words straight from Scripture. To sing about how what's, what's happening in this very moment is anchored to the promises of God from of old. So, since we've been talking a lot about singing here over the course of the past few months, I just want to remind you that this is one thing that you can do, follower of Jesus, as you seek just to, to work out your faith. It's to sing Scripture, to repeat Scripture, to write it on the tablet of your heart. That's what Zechariah is doing. That's what Mary had been doing. They're just singing through the Old Testament. They're borrowing words from God's promises of old. And they're just expressing them back to him. One, one song, I'll get, I'll get more specific to you. All right, what do you mean, sing scripture? Well, well I've got a song uh, that I'll share, just, just a little snippet for you. It's called uh, Zachariah's Prophecy, and it's, uh, it's out of the, uh, the album by Slugs and Bugs. You guys ever heard of Slugs and Bugs before? Just a, it's just a, fa a family album, and 
They take the words of Scripture, hear Zechariah's song, and literally just put them to music. I love this song. My kids actually have been singing this. Uh, It's from their Christmas album. Let's just play it. We're going to play, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds of this. This is literally Luke 1, 68, 69. I've got it up here on the screen if you want to follow along. Scripture set to music. This is just an example for you now. Go ahead and roll it if we've got that song. Bonus points if you can whistle like that. cut it off there if we can. So you got, you got a little flavor, right? After you heard that about a half a dozen times, you're able to start tracking through Scripture. And really, you, you begin to write it on your heart. You begin to commit it to memory very quickly as, as it goes with the melody and, and the meter here. Now, the song keeps going. As you heard just a snippet there, there's actually a pretty solid trumpet piece at the back end of the song if you're into brass. But the point is this. God's people latch on to His Word. And one way that they grow in faithfulness is to do that through song. That's, that's why we care so much here at FCC about what we're singing. And we're trying always to make sure that the words we're expressing through song as we come together are tethered to this book. I love that song. Really, I love this scripture because Luke 1, 68 and 69, if you're looking there with me again, is really like the entire New Testament crunched into just a few verses. Think about it. He has, verse 68, visited and redeemed his people. And now why we're here? Because God the Son has visited us Merry Christmas, and redeemed us. Happy Easter. Right here, Zechariah is singing about it before it even happens. This is Advent, friends. God visiting us in order to, it was His plan from the beginning, to redeem us. Think about how the Apostle John in his Gospel describes this visitation that Zechariah sings about in verse 68. John 1.14, hope you're familiar with this one. And the Word, capital W, Word, became flesh and what? Dwelt. He didn't just come to bop in, rescue, and swing out. No, He set up shop. He visited us. He dwelt. That's literally the word in Greek John is using in John 1.14. It's the word tabernacled. One, one Bible scholar has paraphrased that word, that, that passage. He, he pitched his tent among us. He has visited. He's not just come to save us. He's come to be with us. 
God with us, Emmanuel, visited and redeemed his people. And he, he does it through an interesting way, or, or interesting for our ears, perhaps, in 2022. How does he redeem his people? Look with me at verse 69. Well, he does it by raising up a what? A horn. By raising up a horn of salvation. for what, What's a horn? Well, when you, when you see that word horn in Scripture, horns were symbolic of an animal and their strength. So a horn in Scripture is just another way of saying strength. Zechariah is singing. He's, he's come. God has come to visit us and to redeem us. And the way he's going to redeem us is by raising up this strong salvation, this horn of salvation his name is jesus jesus is indeed our strong salvation let's just keep on reading here through the text verse 71 we'll bite off 71 to 75 that he spoke from the mouth back to 70 that this this horn of salvation is going to come from the house of david that's a prophetic pronouncement he spoke it through the mouth of his prophets this is zachariah just reminding god's people hey He told you he would do this. Just as he said, the angel tells us after Jesus raises from the dead, God is building trust within his people. Every word he speaks is bound to come to pass. As he spoke, he reminds us, verse 70, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. Now, before we continue to rush on through Zechariah's song, I want to tease out what I think is a very significant point here in verse 74, often overlooked. Note that God the Holy Spirit, prophesying through Zechariah here, doesn't just stop with salvation. As if God's only goal for his people were merely to rescue us from hell and whisk us off to heaven. No. This passage, look at verse 74 not only points us to the salvation that we have, but also highlights the fruit of our salvation. If you're taking notes, here's my point. Salvation, I I pray that we grow in this truth, Friendship Community Church. Salvation is not a dead end. Friend, your salvation is going somewhere. And the result of your salvation before you get to heaven, is service. Again, verse 74. What's he say? Oh, the salvation. He's raising up a horn of salvation. Isn't this awesome? He's going to rescue us from our enemies. For what purpose? That we may, being delivered from our enemies, serve him. Why are you saved, Christian? That you may serve him and we forget this part don't we thanks jesus for saving me 
Thanks for rescuing me from damnation. Now I'm just going to live my life and go on about my business however I want. No, 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 no. If you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, your salvation has fruit. Your salvation is intended to produce service to your king. This has always been true. Think about the great salvation of the Old Testament Israelites. I'm sorry, I'm going off script, but when, when they were broken out of jail, as it were, from Egypt in the Old Testament. We all know the line, right? Some of, some of you older folks in here are seeing Charlton Heston as he says, as Moses stands before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And that's all we know. You know, he keeps talking. This is like the second message I preached to you. This is a very big deal ever when I was here at Friendship Community Church. Let me remind you, when God saves the people, he saves them to something. He saves them to serve him. Let my people go. You can go look this up on your own time if you're interested in this. Back in Exodus, it's, it's the, the deliverance from Egypt. Let my people go so that they may take a wild guess. Serve me. Your salvation is intended to produce fruit. And that fruit looks like service to your king. I like how one commentator very plainly puts it, Daryl Bach, God saves for service. So let me ask you a Christmas question. Cued up by these verses, prompted by this Christmas text. If this has happened for you, If you've found salvation in Jesus, what's your salvation look like this afternoon? Some of you need that reminder because we're playing the Ravens and just thought I'd put that out there. Watch your language. What's your salvation look like? Is it producing any fruit? Is it rendering any service? How are you, as a follower of Jesus, serving Him in, as the, as the passage says, in holiness and righteousness all our days? Verse 75. For some here at FCC, this plays out, I mean, it's intended to play out on the body of Christ in a variety of ways. I'm thinking of Jerry Schumacher. Anytime I need something, I pick up the phone and call Jerry. He's got the gift of service, and he loves to help. It's a joy for him to serve his king in that way. I'm thinking of another husband-wife team who are here who are constantly, they don't even do it through the church um, all the time. Many times they're just serving the military community, ringing bells for the Salvation Army. They're just doing all kinds of stuff out of an overflow of gratitude for what the Lord has done in their lives. This is a continuous worship, friends, all our days. Service, all our days. That's intended to span our entire lifespan. So just a word before we continue and finish out our song. Just a word to some of our more seasoned members here. We're so grateful for you. If you're here at FCC and you're more, I'm trying to be respectful, seasoned in age. We need you. 
We need you. Your maturity, your wisdom, don't hang up your boots. Don't in frustration roll your eyes at us young whippersnappers and say, well, do it your way. We need you to help serve faithfully all our days. We were praying for Ruth Ann Main last week. I mean, the church practically started in her mother's living room. And she's still serving in the preschool, getting down with those kids week in, week out, faithfully. I'm thinking of Chuck and D. Christ up here. We're just constantly, they'd even hate that I'm bringing their names up, just by way of an example. Just leading us in prayer, in practical ways, giving meals and support in ways that many of us never even see or know. Thinking of Doc and Iris, who have the ministry of encouragement, who constantly pull me aside when I'm like, oh man, not another dud of a sermon. And they encourage God's people. They pray and they build us up. We need you to give us wisdom and encouragement. Not just to take our cues from society and fade off into the sunset. Zechariah and Elizabeth, let me remind you, we're up there in years. So is Abraham. So is Moses, who gets his assignment at 80. You catching a theme? Don't hang it up. Don't hang it up. Serve him all your days. Okay. We got we to gotta finish this out. Verse 76. We see here in Zechariah's song, in verse 76, a major pivot point. You can circle this verse if you need to. The Holy Spirit leads Zechariah to make a, a, a turn in his song. Up until this point... He's been singing about his Savior, hasn't he? Which is very interesting. I find this interesting. What's been happening in Zechariah's life? Well, he's having a son. What's the pressing event? John the Baptist is being born. But the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he starts singing. Not about his son. Not about John the Baptist. He's singing about his Savior. That's verses 68 to 75 if you're keeping track. The Savior always comes first. And then he finally, at the end of his song, finally gets to the matter at hand. He gets to his son. He starts with the macro view of salvation. And then finally the Holy Spirit leads him to celebrate what's going on in his life, in his son's life, in verse 76 to 79. Let's just just read it here. And you, child, the father Zechariah says, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. There we go again. What's, what's the sunrise going to do? Visit us. The light is coming to visit and redeem His people. Visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Question, John's the pointer to the the Savior. John's the introducer. John's the one who prepares the way. So question, how does he do that? 
The answer is in your Bible. Verse 77. How does John the Baptist prepare the way for the Lord? This is the center of his ministry, as we'll see unfold in a couple weeks after Christmas. Verse 77. To give a knowledge of salvation to his people. How's he... What knowledge is John the Baptist imparting to God's people? In the forgiveness of their sins. What did the Jews want more than anything? Relief from pressure. They wanted a savior. They wanted a political savior from Rome. To get those heavy-handed Romans off their backs. They wanted relief from the taxation. They wanted a restored kingdom. And all of the material blessings that came along with it. They were looking for the, the Savior to come and to restore and save that way. Which, by the way, He will. He will. But John goes before Him to get them ready for Jesus. And what's He saying? What's He doing? He's helping them to see the knowledge of their salvation brought by this light born from heaven is not political deliverance. It's forgiveness of sins. That's what your salvation, Israel, is going to look like. Salvation from your sins. The bigger need that you're missing in all of your circumstantial frustration. I think this gives us a beautiful picture of what the rest of the gospel will then unfold. And, uh, and I love how it ends here. The song ends in verse 79. He's coming. This Savior is coming to forgive us our sins. John, your job is to let people know that he's coming to accomplish this. That's why John keeps on saying, repent. Because he was helping God's people to see that salvation looks like a giving up of our sin and a surrender to our Savior. Anyway, we got to keep. Verse 79. He says this salvation also looks like light. I love that word picture, don't you? Light to those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. The picture of light. I, uh, my family was very blessed this year by Chick fil A. Um, I didn't even know they did this, but Chick-fil-A, actually, we, we were blessed by Chick-fil-A in all kinds of ways. Their sauce is spe spectacular. Their nuggets are great, unrivaled. Now, here's, this is not a commercial. Chick-fil-A does a lot for our community as well, many of you know, and there's, uh, there's someone there on staff who recommended us, our family, to receive free, the blessing of free Christmas lights. I didn't even know this was a thing. They arranged for some company to come out and bling out the front of our house. Seven guys on ladders. I mean, it was awesome. You're... Here's my point. Here's my point. You know what we do? We've never decorated the outside of the house like that before. They set it up on a timer. And our kids will, will, um, will look out our big kind of bay window, whatever you call it, our big window, looking out over the porch where those Christmas lights are as the evening is growing darker and darker, and they're set on a timer for five o'clock, and we've just been watching the darkness, because it's stark black, and then at five o'clock, boom, 
just light resplendent. And as I was preparing for this message and reading through Zechariah's song to his Savior, I was thinking about that picture. Light to those in darkness. The light is going to dawn from on high. For those sitting in darkness, boom! The light is going to come. And he has. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness, that's me, that's you, have seen in Christ a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. That's Christmas. Now, there's one more verse. We don't have time for it today. The child grows up and becomes strong in spirit. He's in the wilderness until the day of his appearing. We'll pick up with that verse, verse 80, in chapter 3 after Christmas. Because it's significant that John is growing strong in spirit. And that he's in the wilderness. We'll unpack that in a few weeks. Let's, let's end it here and we'll, we'll pray. Father, we love you. And we're thankful for light. God, we thank you that in our sin, in our darkness, the light has dawned. That you have come, Christ, to visit us, to become one of us, to identify with our frailty and our weakness, to visit and to redeem of people for yourself. God, thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ. And we pray that as we continue in our Advent season that we would indeed embody joy because of the light of Christ. Lord, let us carry that joy with us through this week. And now as we sing one more time to you, Lord, we just pray that our lives would brim over with the joy born from the Holy Spirit in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name.